if you went on a first date, no one who ever wanted or expected a second would sit down and say, let me tell you why I am a good choice for you as a potential partner. Here are all of my strengths. This is why you should go out with me. Like, it's laughable. What you do if you want a second date as a guy, if you're smart, you say, oh, so tell me about yourself. You listen and you try to find that thing that is a common between what she is saying and you find that commonality that you can start talking about. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Eric Sapp. He's an entrepreneur, faith leader, and political advisor who's president and founder of Public Democracy. Eric is a leader in the Data for Good movement and helped pioneer breakthroughs in empathy-based machine learning and more meaningful AI. His work recently includes combating computational propaganda, and he's been working on new approaches to faith, outreach, and messaging for democratic campaigns and democracy building and advocacy campaigns on a variety of issues for a long time. Eric believes that before people can be persuaded or mobilized, their values and aspirations must be understood so that you can connect with them. We had a good conversation about his career and his work. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Eric Sapp at Public Democracy. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Eric Sapp. I'm the president of Public Democracy. It's a B Corp. I uh, did a Master of Divinity and Master of Public Policy at Duke. Went from there to the Hill, where I worked for Senator Kennedy on the Help Committee, then for Congressman David Price from North Carolina doing appropriations, Homeland Security work and left the Hill in 2005 to start Common Good Strategies, which was the first firm working directly with Democrats on faith outreach. And whether dumb luck or providence, we hit this historical sweet spot of coming into that space right after what was called broadly the God Gap election of 2004, where the best indicator someone would vote for Bush wasn't whether they were registered Republican, but whether they went to church on a weekly basis. And uh, in the Democrats were reeling. We were in the wilderness and Congress, White House everywhere and looking for better solutions. And there I was in my late 20s, but had a lot of ideas. And we ended up um, with a contract from the DNC and the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee to try out some of the initial concepts that I had prototyped in 2004 when I left the Hill and did field work um, back in North Carolina during that election. And it worked. In short, our, we worked on Senator Casey against Santorum, Granholm against DeVos, uh, Strickland, Sherrod Brown, Governor Sebelius. You know, this was two years after the book, What's the Matter with Kansas was written. We showed there was nothing the matter with Kansas. What was wrong was the way we were engaging those communities and we won statewide. And um, our candidates improved democratic performance with white evangelicals by over 25% compared to national average and then 15% with Catholics. And for a too brief of a moment, there was this eureka, Democrats can do this. We can engage into these communities we can engage more broadly. Colbert, cover New York Times, Time Magazine stories about the Democrats getting faith and values work. One of the 
best things about what we did and what's carried on into a lot of the rest of our work. Like this was started in the context of faith and we were engaging these communities, but we were doing it through shared values. None of our candidates stood up there and cited a lot of scripture and verse. They used a language that resonated with people of faith. They engaged them where they were, but we used language that could be accessed by the broader electorate. And Mark Brewer, who was the chair of the Michigan Democratic Party, at one of the conventions after that election, told a story which to me was kind of the highlight of how this really worked, where we held over 150 listening meetings with pastors and faith leaders in Western Michigan for the Sebelius campaign. These were evangelical and Catholic almost entirely. And it was, hey, we just showed up and listened. We didn't give stump speeches. We asked them what mattered to them, connected, and built these really strong relationships where we knew they were going to say, okay, it's great. You're showing up. Is anything real going to come out of it? And Mark had suggested they were redrafting the Michigan Party Democratic platform. And we said, let's offer people an opportunity to contribute to that. We now have relationship. We want it to reflect the best of who we were. The preamble to the Michigan Democratic Party platform was written by pro-life, that traditional family kind of pastors. And it was adopted by the party. Mark knew the the people who wrote it. We, we wrote in a group, the main contributors. And when it was voted on and published, he said the next morning he showed up, he looked at his email list and he saw like the first five emails were from people he knew were secular kind of atheist progressives. And all of them had something in a subject line about like new party platform, opening, preamble. And his just thought was, uh-oh, here it comes. And he said he opened it up and one after the other, they all said, I just read this. It's one of the most inspiring things I've read. Thank goodness, as Democrats, we're finally speaking about who we are and what we believe and stand for as a party. And so to them, even though that same language with a Catholic priest like was like, no way, D- Democrats would never say this. This is too religious. To the secular community, it wasn't religious at all. It was this value-based and kind of finding that connection and seeing how we could cross and connect communities through these shared values then kind of shaped all of our work um, afterwards. One thing in that story, you said Sibelius and you're talking Michigan. Were you meaning Granholm? If I... No, I'm so I did. Sibelius was Kansas. I, I, I switched to too rapidly. We did Kansas and then we also did, did we did Michigan. We, in 2006, we worked in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, in Kansas. A good, a good Democratic year, 2006. It was a very good Democratic okay. year. Keep going. Okay. So after the successes and lessons of 2006, uh, I ended up leading up the Red to Blue program in 2008 with the D-Trip, Values Vets Victory, uh, where we kind of expanded a lot of this work. And then we shifted from there into more of the advocacy space and worked with a bunch of progressive nonprofits, um, faith group service communities on communication, everything from the arms trade treaty and new start on the security side to Oxfam with hunger, bread for the world and others. And out of all of that, that's what kind of brought us to where we are now. Um, We kept seeing as we had been focusing in on how do we build more equitable uh, economic health, political systems, that it was holes in the data that were driving so many mistakes and problems, including on our side. I banged my head against the wall enough inside the White House Democratic Circle saying, hey, we need to think of people differently and being told what the data says and saying, well, we're missing something. Our mission has always been to align what's right with what works. And so instead of saying, you all should do this differently, we started creating a different type of values data set. So we built what became the largest psychometric data set on the core values that motivate Americans to engage in the world. And there were two unique pieces of how we built it that was more luck than any foresight, but building data based on values created a different metric for understanding communities and people. Then another key was because we built the data off of all of our advocacy work, 
none of our data was attention metrics. Everything we were able to measure was what people were willing to commit to. And so as we move to applying this data into machine learning and increasingly into contextual targeting in digital ad spaces, it behaved very differently. And so now a lot of what we're doing, our main focus with public democracy, our B Corp, is, has been in identifying those holes in data, seeing what can be learned from what's missing, and filling those holes, especially under undervalued communities. And that's allowed us to track COVID. We were able to track COVID spread in 2020 ahead of testing. We moved from there into kind of inclusive clinical trials. We worked a lot on vaccine policy. We've been doing work on economic access. And all of that's also given us an insight into how some disinformation and miscommunications between communities can flow. So much of it grows and builds on lack of data. Well, I'm interested to explore this more with you because it's an area of expertise that I, I'm pretty far from. I'm myself quite a secular person and uh, Jewish background. And my knowledge about the sort of faith part of the progressive ecosystem is stronger now than it was five years ago before I started interviewing people, but it could use some filling in. So I appreciate you taking the time, like I said. I'd like to understand like what your family was like growing up to understand why you go down the path to like divinity school, which Gary Hart went to divinity school. And, you know, we have the occasional uh, figure in our party who that's what they study. But tell me about your background in that regard. I am a PK, a preacher's kid, and that in retrospect affected uh, my decision for, for sure. Although growing up as the son of a minister who then my father um, became the chair of the religion department at University of Miami. So most of my growing up, my father was a professor who had also been a pastor, but I was often asked like, oh, you're going to be a preacher like your dad. And from a young age, I always said no, and I never expected to be. And I was a poli-sci and history major in college, but I also played football and was the president of Fellowship Christian Athletes and then also was an RA. And those experiences, I started to see, I had all these people in college come to me in faith crisis because people knew who I was through FCA, but they came to me because they said, oh, you're like me. Like, I don't feel comfortable going to my pastor or something on this, but you're my RA. I know you, or we play football together, or like, you're like me, you're my student government rep. And I saw this opportunity and this need, and this would be like, you know, my grandmother's dying. <laughs> what, what do I do? I mean, th these sort of things, or I read this thing about, I don't understand how I've been taught this my whole life, but this doesn't seem to match. There were two aspects of that evolution in my then calling to divinity school was one, a recognition of how poorly prepared, equipped I was as a 19 year old to deal with any of that stuff and answer questions and how meaningful it could be. And also how there was a real opportunity to minister and care outside of the parish. And so I'm dating myself with this analogy, but I told people, you know, in the faith tradition, say, are you called to ministry? And so when I finally decided to go to any school, I said, I don't know if God's calling me, but I think he's beeped me. And the least I can do is reply to that beep. And so I'm just going to go and explore. But even when I went, I did two master's degrees and I was the first at Duke to do that. I did a master of divinity and a master of public policy. I spent three summers working at the Pentagon during that time. I actually left the wing of the Pentagon that was hit two weeks before 9-11. And all of those things then shaped my sense of faith and calling to the, the need for it to be applied and the need for it to be a service-driven model that reaches beyond just the confines of the church walls. Personally, I believe I exist to serve God and serve others. And that's what I have tried through my career to follow the best path to do that. What did you learn in divinity school that stuck with you? The most important piece, and this may seem strange if you jump 20 years later into most of our work in big data, 
but it's deeply connected is the power of community and personal relationships and the beauty of brokenness. I, I did hospice work as well, that being comfortable in people are messy. I'm reformed Calvinist, like total depravity. Like <laughs> people are not perfect either way. We all have troubles and we all are selfish in a lot of degrees. And yet we also generally aspire to be some, be greater. And I developed in divinity school, just a real love of being in that space and in that mess and not needing kind of the curated version of it. And that I think personally has drawn us into a lot of the data work and spaces where we go. I've often said like one of our realizations on the values data has been like, when a lot of people look at data, they look online, they see that kind of perfect Instagram side. We then look at the person after that when they're curled up on the floor by themselves. And like, if there is one thing that I think describes our social media space right now and a lot of our online engagement, it's a cry into the void. Do I matter? Is anybody listening? Does anybody care? And I will say as a Christian, that's a real indictment. Like that's who we're called to be as the church is an answer. Yes. And we're not, but more broadly, it is an opportunity for as progressives for our community Broadly, like that's who we're called to be as progressives too, is answering those questions, making people feel heard. And that's where a lot of our systems have been breaking down. And the problems we're facing now are people that have not been told yes. And so when they're given a much more destructive version of yes, you matter. And yes, I care. You know how you need to join. You need to turn against these other people or you matter and you'd be better off if it weren't for them. They grab onto that because finally someone's paying attention. And that's both the risk, but also I think the real opportunity and where we find ourselves today. Have you read uh, Kristen Dumay's book, Jesus and John Wayne? I am familiar with it. I have not read it. It's kind of a history of uh, evangelicals over the last 90 years, really the evangelicals who have moved to the right and bonded with the Republican Party and picked up the strains of pro-gun, pro-capitalism, split between male and female roles, a lot of the sort of reactionary strains in Christianity that are maybe dominant in, in this country or, or close to it. How have you viewed Christianity and politics over the course of your career and how they've aligned in a partisan sense? So I started my career, as I mentioned, like when they were heavily aligned and divided, I worked through a space where it readjusted. I mean, in 2006, we won the evangelical vote in Ohio, two years after evangelicals gave George W. Bush the presidency in Ohio. And so I saw how fluid that could be based on how, in large part, how we connected and engaged in that community. Now, evangelical now is much more, I think, of a polling term and even political term than a faith term. And we're seeing that in people who are now identifying as evangelical who don't go to church. So the terms themselves are fluid. The folks who we would have called evangelicals a decade ago often don't align. And there's a fascinating thing we've seen in engagement, especially under young communities, um, with this rise in the nuns and ONESs, not the women religious, where you know there's lots of reporting on that. We were doing polling and other pieces where I've I've never liked the do you attend church on a weekly basis question as a proxy for religiosity because so much of that's cultural. So we would always ask, do you attend Sunday school or a Bible study? Because those tend to not be quite as culturally necessary and they indicate a deeper level of commitment. And so just that was the theory. As we were polling, we also asked this, what's your religious identity? And we ended up in a space where 25% of the nuns, you know, of the people saying, I don't identify as religion, were going to Sunday school or a Bible study. 
not not like spiritual devotion time, but like those two terms. And the first time we did it, our post came in like, oops, we messed something up. <laughs> but, and so they offered, they repolled the oversample on this and I had another 500 people and it played out the same way. This under 45 crowd was pushing themselves away from the label of evangelical and even some of the Christian label because they saw it as so politicized. It wasn't what their faith was. And so they didn't want to accept that. And yet they were still on a weekly basis attending this faith space. And so that's the kind of shifts that I've seen over time that have been fascinating to me. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people in lots of different religions in this country who are sort of lapsed. They like cultural aspects of the religion, but they don't necessarily believe in the mythologies of the belief. Yeah, and we're seeing out of COVID and out of the co-opting of faith, you know, and the associations with Trump and these public leaders throwing their weight behind, I mean, set aside the marriage sort of stuff, just someone who was so horrible, like just such a mean, nasty human being that was so anathema to most every faith tradition that that has definitely created some of that separation and separation from institutionalized faith. There is another aspect of it, though, that's important in this for progressives in our understanding. When you look at these face sides, you also see some of the groups. Now, four in 10 Hispanics in America now identify as evangelical. You have you know, our highest church attendance and faith attendance come from Black, Hispanic, and Asian communities increasingly. And so depending on the lens through which you view these people, in one sense, it's like, oh, yeah, this is our base. Erase that part of the base and call them a different label. And, oh, no, no, that's the other side. And this goes back to some of my lessons from Divinity School. They're people. And you know what? Throughout their day, at one point in their day, they could be the core democratic base. And at another time in their day, they could be the other side and they could be moving between that and they can be pulled in different directions. And I think our job as progressives on the democratic side is both lift up the better angels of those pieces better, give them, equip them with the tools to fit their identity into our communities, into our vision of the future, our policies, and also recognize that we have to deal with those whole people. If we say you have to leave, same as we would say with an LGBT community, oh, you can join, just leave this part of who you are outside. We know that doesn't work. We need to expand those progressive ideals of inclusion much more broadly. And that's not only faith, it's rural, it's where you are, it's whether you like football or not. I mean, it's all these aspects of Americans that we need to get back to speaking to. You alluded to this time on the Hill with Kennedy and uh, Price. Price, I think, just retired, right? Or said he is? He's about to, yes. Yeah, yeah it's a it shame. A He's been loss. a very good representative. And so was Senator Kennedy. What did you learn from working on those staffs that you apply to your consulting work subsequently? My work with Senator Kennedy, I could not have asked for a better first job. It was one of the hardest experiences of my life. It was a place where results were expected. You know, it, we were supported to deliver them. It was a hard environment to work in. I remember our first, my first day coming in, my boss sat me down. He said, okay, you're on the committee. Your job as a committee staffer is to be able to answer any questions Senator asks on any topic at any time. And I'm like 25. And I did what, what you did. I smile. I laughed. I'm like, yeah. And, and he looks at me dead serious and he says, no, I'm being serious. If you can't cut that, you're out. And I was like, well, how can I? And he said, you better figure it out. And that I, you realize when those expectations are held that you can achieve sometimes the impossible when you don't accept that it's not possible. That lesson was key. And then the other one, one of the biggest things I learned from Senator Kennedy, and 
it was one of the seminal experiences of all of my work and even the aligning what's right with what works. First bill that I was kind of a point on, we were in the elevator together. It was chief of staff, me and the senator. And this was in the Medicare prescription drug area. And I forget the exact particulars of it, but the argument we were making was, hey, Senator Kennedy, you're too far out left on this. We've been talking to Republicans like there's no way they're going to come on board. You need to come further in to compromise. The other Democrats on our committee don't want your position either. We're going to lose on this. And we kind of made that case. And I'll never forget this. The senator looks at us and he says, I know that. I've been talking to Senator Frist, Republican chair and Senator Dodd. Frist says he can get the Republican votes if they can vote against Kennedy's position. Dodd will hold the position that we want. This is what we need done. Senator Dodd's going to get the credit for it. Republicans are going to come out and overturn the Democratic chair. That's how we're going to get this done, because this is too important for the people we care about to lose this. And two weeks later, like on the front page of Washington Post, it was how Senator Kennedy was beaten. And he took a public hit looking weak to get the deal done to help the people. And the last thing I did for him before I left his office, I was the floor staffer for prescription drug debate and he filibustered and it was go get two o'clock in the morning, run, get our filibuster material. And he filibustered the Democrats trying to make Medicare a progressive tax structure. And it was all the Democrats. We had the votes and Kennedy filibustered it because he said, obviously, I agree. This is the way it kind of should be. The reason this is protected is because everyone thinks it's fair and is in their interest. It's more fair if it's progressive. But if we do this now, 10 years from now, we won't have the party coalition in power to hold on to this. And people are going to need this a decade from now. So I am going to make that play. He was always thinking, he was the richest member of the Senate when I was there. He was always thinking about how do we actually create real outcomes for the people he spoke on behalf of. Not, he was never happy to lose the good fight, to be patted on the back for having lost the good fight. And he constantly said, because I get to go home, like, because I never have to deal with the consequences of that. And that really stuck, stuck with me And then with Congressman Price, who was a Yale Divinity grad as well, that was where I was able to better merge kind of my beliefs and values. And same thing with Congressman Price, someone who was just all, everything we did was focused on getting the policy right. It had to work. And it wasn't about the talking point. It was about how do you create something that is sustainable, will help people, will survive court challenges, all of those elements. So I learned on the Hill the importance of not just talking about what we cared about, but finding a way to make it work in the world and in this broad political context. Really wonderful stories, I think, about what happens behind the scenes. I wonder how well that still works in the even more polarized world that we're in. There are some examples currently of that kind of deal making still happening, but it's it's gotten harder and harder, hasn't it? It's gotten a lot harder. And um, one other thing that was shifting as I was there and has become even less common was I realized that we, we didn't know the other side as much. Like they're, they're, we have committee staff things. We we're always negotiating against each other. And so I just set up a lunch for both sides. The thing was, hey, we all get together for lunch one in the cafeteria once every other week, no business. And I was new and I was even at that time, you can't do that. Why are you doing that? You know, there was a, I got this. I had a bill taken away from me because people, oh, he's a Christian, he can't be trusted with this this policy um, sort of thing. And there was, oh, wait a second, are you doing this because you're really secretly one of them? But eventually we built these relationships. Some of the folks 
that, that were on the staff were given, were kind of pushing. There was some internal politics on it. And then something came up on a bill. I was the one who was able to backdoor it through somebody who we had who built a relationship through that lunch and got the, the outcome we needed. And at that point, the floodgates opened and everyone started showing up. The head of the committee, our, our staff director said, people should start going to this. And those definitely don't happen. The shift to campaigning 24 sevens affected that, but also just the polarization of our politics. We're not thinking as many moves ahead as I was used to seeing happen when I was there and even in some of my you know earlier political campaign days. I think Twitter 24-7 News has just shifted the mindset. I don't think it's shifted the actual outcome strategy piece, but there's fewer folks thinking about those broader contexts and what's going to be needed six months from now that we have to get in place before that happens. Tell me about the sort of founding story for public democracy. What caused you to launch it and what did it take to make it happen? So Common Good Strategies Consulting Group became a liaison group and then a liaison. Those are both LLCs converted to public democracy. And the shift was over the data and digital focus. A liaison is subsumed within? Yes. Okay. Yes. I wasn't it, sure it, if that was alongside as a consulting arm, but it's not. Okay. Got it. So so the, your, your enterprise now is public democracy. It's public democracy. Okay. Yeah. And then we also started, and then we have a C3, Public Democracy America. And this is part of the origin story. I realized as a consultant, increasingly, a lot of what I was doing was funding my own side projects or trying to find people to hire us to tackle these initiatives or to test out this new theory we had and that we needed a different model for that. And especially around the data side, and this will go back to some of the faith pieces, we were doing uh, what became our values data set. As I mentioned, we have this data set over 50 million Americans that we have uh, been able to identify the core values that motivate them to engage. And we were running a campaign, it was like 2015 or 16, on climate. And I was watching our dashboard. It was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I'm watching a million people engage with content that I'd written a week before. And they were taking, it was like a, a petition or call of Congress, one, some advocacy action. And I had this kind of almost spiritual experience of, holy cow, all these people are connected. I knew we were getting data on that. I knew there were ones and zeros being added, but I realized what our database was, wasn't a better way to sell people things or ones and zeros. What it was, was this collection, this repository of moments of hope, engagement, and connection. And I, we had a responsibility to steward that and understood in that way, not as kind of cold, hard data or a tool to drive action, but as this repository of those moments, that is a powerful new frame to approach data and understanding on these communities. And we needed to take a different direction to take responsibility for that and to start bringing those voices into what, what we were doing. I should probably tell the story on the inclusive, on, on some of the COVID clinical trials, because that's a good example of it. But that was, that was how we got to this transition with public democracy. I'll ask you about that, but where do you get connected with data? You don't strike me, and maybe I'm wrong, as like a, as like a tech and data person. What, what's your connection to that? Who, who do you have on your team that, 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 has data intelligence or how did you steep yourself in that? Where's that coming from? So I love data and tech people. And I will also take your comment as a compliment as well. And that most of my team is actually not. We, again, work and view data as just a lens to people. And everything we do in our modeling and the systems we've developed are empathy-based systems where 
most of the current marketplace, the way digital advertising and everything is done is how do we get people to do things we want? How do we get their attention? How do we direct them where we want to be? And we invert that. And this is what's worked for us. We say, and this is why starting with the holes in the data, what's missing? Like when we look at the commercial data space, when we look at the available data, what's not there? And most significantly, who's not there and why? And let's understand that. And then let's imagine how we could fill those voids. And in the process of doing that, there is some data piece done, but we're not doing massive computational stuff. We're not writing our own AI code. We're able to use and repurpose. Like Google's got some pretty darn good algorithms that when you look at MarTech digital advertising technologies that are mostly used, again, to sell products or sell people, you build this audience. Well, oh yeah, I need to get really good understand this audience so I can get them to do what I want. Well, leave that second part out for us for a little bit and say, what would happen if I just really got a very good understanding of this audience and then said, what do they want? And maybe this goal I have for them, instead of how do I get my ad to these people, I start by understanding these people and where they are and then figure out what does this ad need to be? What does this offering need to be? What is this goal? How might we tweak this goal to everything we do? And this goes back to my organizing work too. Said like, you have to make yourself valuable to your community. Not, hey, give me money or come do my thing. Why? People are busy. You want to volunteer? Help make sure that that volunteer experience creates value for the individual. So they see that as something that meets one of their needs that's how you start to succeed in drawing out big, big groups. That's the way we, we use, um, we've been using data. And we do then work with very smart people. I've got a couple on my team that come out of that space and really get the ad industry and, and how those tools work. We partner with other groups like Forward Edge AI is one of our big um, artificial intelligence partners. And they'd be a great group to bring on to your, your program at some point. These guys are brilliant. Like they can code and do all kinds of things. And they will help us when we say, here's a need. How could we create a tool to meet it? Do they do much politics? They are um, more into, again, community. We do politics as a means to an end. Their work has been a lot of what they've done is like they have a new um a new program that helps combat scams. Uh, and they use um, social physics, which again is this concept of you create communities where they're rewarding and encouraging each other. And there's lots of math behind that. But the basic concept is people want to help out and participate more if it's good for them and good for people they know. Who are your clients nowadays? So we now work with more partners. Um, and so we've worked with... Uh, Stacey Abrams, Fair Fight, uh, National Urban League. We're doing a big program for them on health equity. Kaiser Permanente, we did a significant program on, on COVID with them. Uh, we did a lot of BLM's digital get out the vote work on the political side. And I'm, I'm kind of combining as I'm telling the story. The C3 obviously does C3 work. Um, when we were doing some of the political work in 2020, we helped direct the Evangelicals for Biden effort. We also did did different work and kind of outreach, get out the vote for progressive funded uh, entities. We're working with National Hispanic Health Alliance on um, health equity, on inclusion there, on understanding around COVID and participation in health systems. We're working with one of the with the largest black owned bank on an economic access an equity system. And then I was a fellow, or I'm a fellow I, on the Atlantic Council to develop data trusts, which is a concept around how do you build data systems and economies? Uh, it's going to start with microeconomies, where instead of the privacy frame, which is kind of, you can either destroy all your value or you can give it to monopolies, is can we build communities that share their data 
data grows. It's the first asset in human history that's not scarcity-based, where the more you combine it, the more you use it, the more valuable it is, whereas everything else in our economic systems assumes it's valuable because other people don't have it. You, you get communities combining data, whereas an individual person's, what's my share of Facebook? Yeah, it's hard to figure and it's not worth that much, but together you all can create something of real value that is more valuable because it's all shared. That value can be recognized. And a lot of times, instead of like a $5 gift card to Starbucks, you combine all those $5 gift cards and now you've got $5,000 that as a community, you can decide to reinvest someplace. And you all are a community because you share a common purpose, a space, a value set. And so how about you put it into that and that then drives greater engagement, creating more data and value into the marketplace. And it shifts how markets and AI systems and machine learning works because instead of only learning about us based on what we buy and based on what we'll pay attention to, you build these data sets on what people care about and it starts to change the way we see the world and each other because of what we're shown. So how did... How did this work with the COVID example, which sounded like it was for Kaiser? With the clinical trials, which was before Kaiser, it was with Ashner, the one of the largest health providers in New Orleans. They were trying to understand COVID prevalence, how many people had COVID. This was April, May of 2020. And there was a very short time, two weeks, because they wanted to get a baseline. They were in shutdown before the city reopened. And a normal clinical trial takes many months to set up. And the reason we were brought in was because we had these systems to engage people and the contextual targeting. We could do it without PII based. Uh, and so anyway, that's where we got the chance. And we came in and look and they say, do you think you could recruit an entire clinical study in two weeks? And we said, yeah. And like naively, I'm like, yeah, and you all are scientists. I'm looking at the community. I think we can get a representative sample of your population. And, I, and they kind of laughed. And there was this little kind of virtual pat on the head. And they said, well, that's sweet. You know, we love that that's where you're focused. We want you to do as much as you can on that. But, you know, black people don't participate in clinical trials. And so all the evidence shows they won't show up. So try your best. But we've got, we need to fill these numbers. Let's make this work. But like, let's do our best there. And we kind of went back and we're like, ah, we're going to do this. And so we started this program and it turned out we completed what became the first ever large scale population clinical trial to be fully inclusive Hispanic and black populations. How do you get black people to turn out? Like, I didn't get black people to turn out. I'm a white guy. I didn't understand them better. What we did was we got out of the way of allowing Black people to claim their agency and participate. And because of work we'd done previously with the census, too, we also knew like single moms never participate in these. And we set goals, not just like by demography, but by groups. We want this to be a good study. Let's get everybody. And so with single moms, and this is the best kind of example of how this works, the way a normal clinical trial works is they send out a mailer multiple months in advance. Hey, schedule your time in advance. And they say, oh, we randomly sent those mailers out. Therefore, everybody has an equal chance. That's not the case at all. You tell a single mom working two jobs, hey, why don't you schedule your appointment two weeks in advance? That's not giving her an equal shot. That's an absolute barrier to participation. She cannot do that. She doesn't have that control over her schedule. And there's so many other things on her plate. What we found were those single moms, we knew they had a huge, from our census work, they cared deeply about their kids. They actually engaged in many of the cities we were looking at at much higher rates, looking for child support, resources for their kids than wealthy parents did. And those single moms, we had over 2,000 single moms sign up for 2,500 person study. They did not sign up two months in advance. They didn't sign up two weeks in advance. They signed up at 1130 at night, the night before, and they were not looking for how do I sign up for a clinical trial? They were looking for how do I help my kid keep up when they're in daycare all day? How do I keep my family safe when I'm working a front end job? And most of the choices they were given were not good options. 
But in this time, when they, in that moment, they're given, hey, you can, you can find out whether you had COVID, whether you had COVID. It's free. You can pick your time. That was something they could do. That was something that helped meet that need they were looking for, and they jumped at it. And then the second piece of it was we saw a lot of our work. We've done a lot of work with vets with severe PTSD, too. We saw the need for these different communities to have choices. So we gave them off the bat do you a text message. Hey, you may need to reschedule. We know that, like, we expect you, instead of you're feeling guilty, life happens. If you need to, just do this. We ended up with two-thirds of our participants came on a rescheduled visit. So they signed up. Then because they were offered this choice, and they didn't have to call someone and say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't do it. They just did it. They showed up. All of those pieces, like, so those were all data. Like, each of those insights came off of understanding the data side, but you also see how this isn't big math. This is much more understanding people and communities. And that's why those people participated. And the cool piece about it, so like, hey, there's participation, there's inclusion, yay. Oshner was the first to publish and identify asymptomatic spread. Because we included everybody, the science was a lot better. It was a heck of a lot better for Black and Hispanic communities to have them included, but for everybody, they were able to reach insights on being one of the earliest identified loss of smell and to see how, how significant asymptomatic COVID was in communities and spread because we got this inclusive sample. And that, like to me, just summarizes everything. It's the right thing to do. It is especially helpful to communities that are often left out. And it's in all of our interest to do this out of a selfish and a moral purpose. When I talk to organizers that are local, I think they tend to highlight a similar uh, necessity to understand people and community. When I talk to really good media consultants, I think they think about the humanity that they're talking to, pollsters, good ones also. But there does seem to me to be a disconnect that develops somewhere between normal party operations and communication with regular people. And it it's somewhere around data. It's somewhere around trying to do things at scale. It's somewhere around the distance between the consultant, let's say, and the and the constituent or or voter or whatever. Do you see that too? What do we need to do to change the effectiveness of our communication if that's a really important insight that I think you're you're developing or have developed? Yeah, I mean that I agree hundred percent with that. It is it is shift our focus to the audience. Communication is not about what you want to say, but what people are able to hear and how they will hear it. And I used to do comms trainings for candidates and others, and I would use the analogy of like, and we all know this as human beings. Like I use the example of a date. If you went on a first date. No one who ever wanted or expected a second would sit down and say, let me tell you why I am a good choice for you as a potential partner. Here are all of my strengths. This is why you should go out with me. Like, it's laughable. What you do if you want a second date as a guy, if you're smart, you say, oh, so tell me about yourself. You listen and you try to find that thing that is a common between what she is saying and you find that commonality that you can start talking about. Like that simple example, but think about how we communicate what all of our political ads are, what the way all of our websites, what you need to know. No, don't what you need to know. And this again with data and the way our systems are built. People are going to the internet basically asking questions. They are going and saying, how do I find this. This is what I care about. I'm looking for insights. I'm trying to understand. 
Don't tell them what to think. Don't tell them what they need to do. Be useful to them. Help answer those questions. And when we do, that's how we connect. That's how people feel stories. And that's how we get them where we would like them to be. I hear that. I suspect that it creates better communication with people if you do that. But I also have in the back of my mind an alternative model, which is like, why then was someone like Trump so effective in shaping the opinions of so many people when his model was telling people what to think, telling people that he had the answers, telling people I alone can fix this. I mean, he did listen. He gave speeches. He listened for where there was applause. There's strategy and data back there somewhere in his operation. But like, how do you jibe that theory of communication and effectiveness with some other models that are out there that seem so wrong to people like you and me? He made communities feel listened to even when he was telling them he underperformed. Like we should be scared of what happens if someone doesn't have Trump's challenges and engages in that same way. Here's an, with opioids in, two, in 2016, everywhere he went, he talked about opioids. Hillary Clinton never did. And this was tearing our country apart. And there is a fascinating, his most famous speech, we all think 2016, we remember the, the rapist's wall speech. When people polled in the Midwest what they remembered about that speech, it wasn't that Mexicans were rapists. It was the drug dealers part. And that is why people wanted the wall throughout the Rust Belt. It was opioids. And that doesn't make sense. Like, we know that. And even they kind of knew that. Yeah, they're not all coming over there. But this was the most important thing to them. And Trump said he got that. He said, I recognize that problem. Here's how I'm going to solve it. And again, they didn't like the exit polls. This was, I thought, the most tragic and you know, piece of 2016 was most people who voted for Trump didn't believe the country would be better if he was elected. And they didn't believe he'd deliver on his promises. They didn't vote for him because they were stupid. Trump was the Hail Mary pass. You don't throw a Hail Mary because you think it's going to work. You throw a Hail Mary because you know you'll lose if you don't try. That's also the delta and opportunity above that. Like to, to get it better than that is not that hard. But it means we've got to start with meeting people where they are in this process and there is a huge gap of folks that are waiting for someone to say they hear me that instead of here's what we think are the most important issues for you and your community and what everyone should be focused on. I hear what you're talking about. Here's how we're going to deal with them. And then here are some other things that you may want to consider. That shift would make all the difference. Do you think that in the last election, there were things that Biden did that followed those sort of suggestions? I think Biden did that very well in the last election and then kind of lost. We got like Biden ran not being anti-Trump for a large part of 2020. He talked about bringing the country together. You know, he even talked and people are saying and it's right naively about how Republicans would not just be total obstructionists in Congress. But people wanted that and to believe in that. And then increasingly, he's gotten shrill. He's running. His speeches are about not Trump again. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is, is hurting him. This last year, what Democrats have passed is a once-in-a-generation <laughs> policy. Like, these programs that we have enacted are amazing. And... Yet, instead of telling those stories again and again, we focused on, well, yeah, but a trillion dollars was taken out. Look, yeah, two, two trillion was passed in this thing. And I suspect it was a lot like that Kennedy thing where, like, you want a trillion, so you go for two. You got the one and you don't want to say, I really only wanted one, right? 
you and you take the hit on that because you got a lot of things. I like to believe there's some of that kind of thinking going on. You know, I like, think there was in the negotiation, but we didn't tell the story on the good pieces of it. People didn't know about the child tax credit. We've cut a childhood poverty in half in this country. Everyone should be behind that. And most people don't know about it. And that was where some of our breakdown was. Like we would create a space in Spanish on the child tax credit and immediately be up above the IRS in organic search, getting huge click-through rates on all of our content because no one was building these answers for people that these most fundamental questions, even again, what the Bible has to say about the vaccine in Spanish is another one. There was nothing on that. And so people were getting drawn into bad answers on it. And there was a huge engagement in search on that issue. Can I do this as I'm pro-life? The answer is yes. Like the U.S. Constitution Catholic Bishops, Southern Baptists said, yes, you have to. But because of discomfort in our health you know, science and the progressives promoting it with that community, we never gave them those answers. Those simple pieces then create that connection instead of them going to the other side and six months later being at a DeSantis rally. They've had their needs met. They have now gotten vaccinated, got their family vaccinated because they feel they can based on their values. They're a part of this culture. They're not sick. They didn't lose their job. All these little micro changes happen and we're in a, a different world and space. And again, it comes from Instead, of, this is why you should have gotten vaccinated. This is why you should care about this issue instead of this other one. Saying, let's understand what matters to you. And that's where data, same as field. When you said earlier about, hey, this is how field people talk. Probably the most common thing I hear when I'm talking to partners is, I just heard this from our field folks. They were just saying we need to do this. And it's like, yeah, this is the big divide because we're watching the same community. They are telling the world the internet, and the people they talk to. This is what matters to me. Let's start there. Meet those needs and then make ourselves valuable enough so people will then come along with the things that we think are in their best interest. But prove ourselves to them first. Help them see how that's the case. Don't tell them it's the case. Is there any different advice you'd give to someone who's communicating to people of faith versus secular people? That's an interesting, good question. Um, not really, because our basic advice is understand, answer, don't tell, listen first, and then connect on, on the core values. Now, your language can obviously be slightly different because of that, but that's faith, that's geography region, that's race, that's gender, that's economics. Like your language will always be somewhat different if you understand your community, not because you're changing any of your core pieces, but to better connect. And again, maybe the final takeaway here is that values connection can bring all kinds of groups together that you get past the pre-existing labels, that there are core things that we value. There is a hope, there is an opportunity, there is an optimism there is a belief in the need to support our family, a care for family, and a belief in our communities, and a belief that things will get better. Whether those are myths or hopes or whatever you want to call them in America, they go across the board throughout our society. Speaking to those, giving people something to believe in instead of something to fear, is our path forward. And putting my partisan hat on, Democrats never win elections when it's about who we're against. Like you go back to like World War II, when the main issues are who we're not and who the risk is internally, we lose. We win the elections when we talk about what we can be and who we are as a country. So this is the danger with some of the base only, however, you know, setting aside how that can be ill-defined. But when we set ourselves, how do we get to 50 plus one? We tend to lose those because that's not who we are. Republicans can do it well because they that's kind of more their winning strategy. Just because they won an election doing that doesn't mean we should replicate that. It means we need to be better about calling people together, not to our vision, 
but to understanding what the unified vision of the country is and trying to tap into that. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? What's the one advice to any of your listeners that anyone could do to make a small difference? What do you think someone should do to make a small difference? I would say, especially anyone who has a 501c3, a nonprofit, the easiest way to get into understanding communities is like, if you have a 501c3, Google will give you $10,000 a month in free ads. There is no margin to be made for consultants running that. And so it is not utilized, but it is one of the most powerful tools. 10,000 a month? 10,000 a month. It's Google grants. You can go to Public Democracy America. We will resource and help set them up for anybody. Um, PublicDemocracyAmerica.org, the Better Angels program. But Google will give the Google grant for any 501c3 that will give you $10,000 a month in free search ads. And so one, hey, there you go, $120,000, good mechanism, you can speak out. But what it does is it starts that process. You don't run the ad unless you're meeting a need. So you start realizing, oh, my, why is anyone coming to my website? Well, here's what they're searching for. It does, my website doesn't match what my community cares about. I'm seeing that at the very simplest, easy interface, it starts a process forward of understanding from us to them. And Google does this for free because it knows its algorithms aren't learning right about people. In civil society, when people engage through that space, they engage differently. And that makes Google better at answering everybody's questions. That's why it does it for free and it's good PR. But you are creating data that teach systems better how to serve people, how not to be co-opted and twisted. Everything you do in that space tends to bring people together and serve and build community and help systems work. All of that is progressives, builds an ecosystem and system, you know, in a context that is more of a winning context for us. And so one thing people can do, that's something, and it's not that hard to start, but it can start you down a path that's makes a difference and helps you learn a lot of new things. This country feels to me like it's on the brink of potentially a really dark time. Restoration of Republican rule after an insurgency where they tried to steal an election that they lost. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the next number of years? I'm optimistic. Democracy is never something that exists passively. Like it, this is not a foregone conclusion, but rather than looking at the last even four years and saying, oh my goodness, our democracy isn't working, it's under attack. It's like, how amazing is our system that given what was thrown at it and given the hardships of COVID and everything else and the efforts to completely undermine that we are where we are, I think our system is working it is resilient and was built to be. The key is going to be whether the people continue to engage in it. And what we see in our data and the myriad of issues we work in is more hope, more of a desire for something better in community. People are still trying. As long as people are trying, I think our system will work. What a lot of the forces against us, foreign and domestic, are doing is trying to tear down a sense of agency and create mass apathy. That's the real danger. I don't see that yet in the data and in the communities that, that we're engaging. And so as long as I see those things and as we look, you see in rural white areas, the same care for community, for each other, the same desire to make a better world for our family as you see in an urban black space, as you see in a rural black space. And there are so many pieces that unite our country and communities that we often will divide on a red blue basis that that points the path forward. We have to claim it as Democrats. We have to do a heck of a lot better job than we're doing communicating, engaging and listening. As progressives, we need to ensure our systems work. We need to all try to be less angry. But overall, I'm an optimist on those things. I'm probably emotionally, personally one. Uh, I have faith. 
but but it's uh, there is evidence of things unseen in our in our data, um, and there's a lot of substance for what I hope for, uh, which is the Hebrews' definition of faith, and that comes out of the data. So it's not just kind of a Pollyanna-esque approach. It is we see it again and again. People when they're given the chance, claiming their agency and participation. You know, people standing in line for two hours. It's going to get harder for voting. We know that. But the people standing in line for two hours, like that needs to be fixed. And holy cow, is that awesome. (laughs) They did that when COVID, when there were access issues and people were waiting on the phone to get their Hispanic older women, New York Times. Oh, this isn't working because of this. Yes, we need a better system. And isn't it incredible that those people overcame? The story of America is not one of great equity. It is of communities again and again overcoming inequities. And just because we see new ones being put in our place, to me, does not <laughs> mean that this, the history and all the evidence we have of what Ameri- how Americans respond isn't going to replicate itself. It may not. But um, most of what we're seeing indicates that people are going to face and tackle these problems the same as we have, whether it was McCarthyism, Jim Crow, the Cold War, World War II, you name it. Well, that seems to me like a good point at which to end this. Uh, Is there anything else, Eric, that you want to say? Well... I, I, I've appreciated the conversation. Uh, I've listened through a lot of your podcast. Appreciate the the voice you bring to this and all the different folks you bring on, and your listeners who care because that that's what we need more more people who care and are gonna commit themselves to build the better world together. So thank you. Well, thanks for taking the time with me. That was Eric Sapp. Eric is at publicdemocracy.io. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.